This morning we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verses 19 through 29 and the title of our sermon this morning is called Wisdom Take Two because Solomon, the author here, he goes into what wisdom looks like and, and, and what it is and since Ecclesiastes is a part of a collection of the books of the Bible considered wisdom literature. It only makes sense then that there are lots of references to wisdom in this book, and particularly again at the end of chapter 7. And so wisdom is talked about in a lot of different ways, in a number of different ways. And so we kind of want to ask our, this question this morning, well, how should we understand wisdom in a biblical sense? And so in order to help us understand Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I want to get a little bit of help from the book of James in the New Testament, specifically uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So turn in your Bible, before we even read in Ecclesiastes, turn in your Bible to James chapter 3. And we're going to hear uh, just kind of what he says about wisdom and how we should approach wisdom and what we should think about it. And so James chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we learn a lot about wisdom biblical wisdom from James chapter 3 here. And so just to recap what we just read, wisdom is these things. Wisdom is pure and peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason, or some of your versions may say open to rebuke. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and it's sincere or it's genuine. So godly wisdom is actually played out in the good conduct of or behavior and works of a person. So if we want to know if we're a wise person, we look at how we live. If you want to evaluate if someone else is wise or living wisely, we evaluate how they live. So we know some of those things that wisdom is not. What or what wisdom is, let's talk about some of the things that wisdom is not, because they're listed here in James three as well. It says wisdom is not bitter, it's not jealous. It's not selfish, it doesn't boast, it's not false, it's not of this earth, it's not earthly, it's unspiritual is what it is, and actually it's demonic in its nature, or the opposite of the thing that it's supposed to be. That's what wisdom is not. It's not all the things it's supposed to be. And so being unwise or, or being foolish is actually played out in the same way of what wisdom is. Being wise or foolish, being unwise or foolish is played out in disorderly conduct or disorderly behavior and it says they're in vile practices of a person. 
So there's plenty here in the book of James, specifically chapter 3, for a full sermon. We're not going to do that today. We'll save that for another time. What we want to see better this morning is how to understand what real wisdom is. And real wisdom isn't evidenced by the person who stands up tall in the middle of a bunch of other people and assures everyone around them that they're really wise. That's not what real wisdom is. I think real wisdom, as James puts it, is played out in the meekness of a person's life. And so here's some examples of how real wisdom will be played out in a person's life. It's, it's in how they hold their tongue when they're attacked. It's in how they speak to, but also about, other people. Real wisdom is shown in how a person treats their spouse, in how a person raises their kids, or how a person does their job, or how how a person loves their church. So right now, in in this time that we live in, there are lots of people with big voices who desperately want to be heard. But the truly wise person, Scripture tells us, is, is humble. A truly wise person is gentle. They're aiming for peace and they're full of mercy towards others, James 3.17 tells us. Those are the qualities that we should be looking for in our leaders, brothers and sisters. Leaders that are humble, that are gentle, that aim for peace, and that are full of mercy towards one another. Those are the kind of qualities that we should be teaching and demonstrating to our children and to those who look up to us. So now that we have a, hopefully, a better, certainly a biblical understanding of what real wisdom is, uh, before we read our text today, let's remember how Solomon has talked about wisdom in Ecclesiastes already. In chapter 1, verse 17, he says that real wisdom is compared to madness or folly as the opposite. Okay, so you've got wisdom and you've got folly, foolishness, madness, he says. In chapter 2, verse 13, Solomon states that wisdom is greater than folly, even though both are vanity without God. So you're better off being wise than foolish. However, if you don't have God as the main goal of your life, then wisdom and foolish both are just vanity in the end. Chapter 2, verse 26 says that wisdom is a gift from God for everyone, for all those who please Him, it says. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, in verse 11 and 12, Solomon says that wisdom is actually an advantage or a protection and that it actually preserves the life of a person. Now, in verse 19, we see that wisdom is said to make a person stronger than even just sheer physical strength. So let's read our text together again, or together this morning. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 19, through the end of the chapter, through verse 29. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? 
I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all those I have not found. See, this alone I have found, that God God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So right off the bat in our text today, we find out that there is value to wisdom again. Now, to be sure, life is not like an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Okay, you guys know the kind of movie that I'm talking about. It may not be Arnold Schwarzenegger, but some other action star. And they go into this huge gunfight, and they have either extremely limited firepower or no firepower at all. Somehow all the bullets miss them, and they end up, just by their sheer strength and rippled muscles alone, figuring out a way to, to win this thing. Well, the, the reality is that it doesn't matter how strong and tough you are. If you go into a gunfight without a weapon, you're going to get shot, and you're probably going to die there. Physical strength means very little if you have no wisdom or sense about you. And in this way, Solomon is saying that a wise man is stronger than ten strong men, strong men who guard a city. And so, verse 20 is kind of an interesting interjection in the text here. Um, and I think it needs to be understood, read, and, and certainly understood in, in context. He says that there is not a righteous man on earth, who, uh, one who does good and never sins. So, certainly I don't want you to raise your hand about this this morning, but does this come as a surprise to you? Or to, or to anyone? It shouldn't that no one including you watching this, including me saying this this morning, is it a surprise to us that no one does good and never sins? I mean, this is really basic to salvation because if a person won't admit that they have sinned and they won't admit that they're in need of rescuing, how can they be saved? Now, this seems kind of strange on the surface here, but if the gospel message doesn't first tell us the truth of our sinfulness, it can't ever really affect our hearts with the message of redemption that we so desperately need. Think about it this way. A drowning person who refuses to admit that they are drowning is probably not going to reach for the hand of a rescuer because they say, I don't need you. I'm not drowning. I'm okay. And the rescuers there saying, you're really not. Please take my hand. I want to be there. I want to save you. But if you can't convince that drowning person that they're in peril and in grave danger, they're not going to reach for the hand to be rescued. And so it has been tasked in in the, the job given to Christians, to those who follow Christ, to preach truth to, to a world that in reality is is drowning in sin. And most of the time, they're going under and they're not admitting that they're in danger at all. Now, this is not just my observation as, as a, a pastor of a few years, but this is taught throughout Scripture. Think back to Isaiah 64, verse 6. You've, you've heard these, this verse before. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like 
a polluted garment, like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, they take us away. So sin is real, and it really pollutes us to the point of taking us away from God. Sin will remove us, not only from God's blessing, but from God's presence. Then in the New Testament, Paul reaffirms this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. There's just some excerpts from that. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That sounds like what Solomon is saying. Paul continues, he says, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. And he finishes by saying an interesting statement. He says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That also sounds familiar. From what Solomon is saying and from what we're observing in our world today, this was absolutely true today, just like it was in Paul's day, just like it was in Solomon's day. And this goes back to verify, really, the main point of last week's message is that our world is broken. You and I are broken people. Wisdom is still the overarching theme in Ecclesiastes seven nineteen through 29 here. So we've got to ask this question, what wisdom have us do in light of this, in light of our sin, in light of our brokenness, what would, we, what would wisdom have us do? Well, specifically, I think here, wisdom would have us not think too highly of ourselves. What I mean by that is wisdom would have us be humble, would live in humility, because no one is wise all the time, and since every person is imperfect and in need of rescuing, you might hear some things about yourself said by other people that you don't like. And that's where Solomon goes in verse 21. He says, don't take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. So you might think some things are unjustly said about you, especially if they're coming from someone that you have authority over. You don't want to hear this sort of thing. Or or maybe even worse, you might hear things said about you that actually are true. But this is probably going to make it make you even more uneasy if you know than if you knew that these were just flat out lies. If somebody's just lying about you, you can almost justify that in your mind. And say, yeah, they're wrong. It's not a big deal. I'm just going to move past that. But if what they're saying is actually has some rings of truth to it, boy, that just makes us uncomfortable. We should listen to the wisdom that we're being told today. What's the point here? Why, why would we just say, well, don't take to heart those things? Well, verse 22 is, is our answer there. Because your heart operates the same way. My heart does the same kind of a thing. We are just as prone to wonder as the next person. We're just as prone to say a hurtful, hurtful word as the next guy. And so the underlying idea here that Solomon is getting at is is what Jesus says also in Matthew chapter 6 verse 12. He says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. He's teaching people how to pray. He says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. It's the same thing that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
So Solomon, I don't think, is encouraging us just to be forgetful about what people say. He's telling us to choose to forgive. Why? Because we're just like them. Because we do the same things. And were it not for the redeeming and restraining grace of God in our lives, every one of us has the potential to do horrible and wicked things towards our fellow man. And to our shame, this happens day in and day out in our lives and in the lives of people around us. And we see that so vividly right now. But wisdom would show us a better way. Wisdom would would tell us, hey, don't take these things to heart. Don't repay evil for evil, but instead choose to forgive, knowing that our relationship with God is affected greatly by it. This is a hard truth to wrap our minds around, but Jesus is very clear in Matthew chapter 6, 14 and 15. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is, this is really basic and clear teaching. So a person who claims to be a believer, but who refuses to forgive another person, I think actually reveals how little they understand the power of the gospel, if they understand anything of it at all. Now, we don't have to do any theological gymnastics or this great unraveling of the text to understand what what we're being told here. A Christian has been forgiven by God, and therefore a Christian will forgive others because of it. Nothing another person can do to offend me is worse than what I have already done to offend a holy God. And the same can be said for you as well. And if God is gracious to forgive my offense, then you better believe that I should be gracious to forgive the offense of others. Now back to our text in verses 23 and 24 of Ecclesiastes 7. All of this, everything Solomon has discussed so far, and particularly what he's just said here, he has he says he's tested or proved by wisdom in order to understand, to try and understand the mind of God. And uh, he's not able to. He says, I will be wise, but then he says, ah, it was it's far from me. Have you ever wanted to know about something and so you dedicated a bunch of your free time, a lot of your life, uh, into learning it, only to find in the end that you kind of feel like you don't know any more, like almost like you're dumber because of it. I, I've mentioned before that I keep, I keep bees at our house, and I've learned a lot of information about them because I'm, I'm interested in them. I want to do this well. And so here's, here's some information that you, you can know that I've learned about bees that I think are really fascinating and interesting. I can tell you these facts. If you see a bee out on a flower, um, we see a lot of them on the white clover right now in our yards. Uh, If you see a honeybee out there, there is a 99.99% chance that that is a female bee. And we know this because really the drone bees or, or male bees, they really only leave the hive in order to mate with the queen or at Right before winter, they really they get kicked out of the hive because they're not needed throughout the winter, and then they end up dying. So if that bee you see on the flower is almost definitely a female bee. It's a honeybee. Um, I can also tell you that 
The queen bee is the only honeybee that can survive stinging more than one time. If you get stung by a, a regular honeybee, that bee dies because of it. Their, their stinger gets embedded in your skin and it kind of rips it off of the end of their body and they can't survive that. Uh, but a female is made, a female queen bee is made differently. And so as she emerges from her shell, her shell, her cell, uh, she goes around and uses her stinger to sting the other queen cells that haven't emerged yet to kill those queens. And she can do that multiple times so that she is the alpha queen, so to speak, in the hive. It's, it's fascinating things. Besides human beings, bees are the most studied organism in the world, most studied thing on the planet. I've got a stack of beekeeping books that some, most that I've read, actually. But you know what? I'm actually a pretty crummy beekeeper. Four out of the seven hives that I've tried to manage have died. They've either left and found somewhere else to live, or they've just died in, in the hive. And, and even though I know a lot of facts about what to do, the secret to actually being successful as a beekeeper feels even far farther off now than it did when I first started reading all of these books and getting into it. And I, I think that this seems to be Solomon's example as well, or his experience rather, as well. Look at verses 25 through 28 in Ecclesiastes 7. It says that he turned his heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. He tried hard to figure this life out, but he experienced the dedication of his life to understanding these things and then also experienced foolishness and madness. He tried it all, the good and the bad, the wise and the foolish, and yet he didn't get where he wanted to go. He felt like it was deep, he says, very deep and far from me. All the effort, all the time, all the wisdom that he had and was given to him, he still didn't know it all. And he found some things out throughout the process. He discovered some things from his experiences, and he kind of lists them here. And the very first one that he had intimate personal experience with is the sin of adultery and having multiple wives. And he says in verse 26, the beginning, he says that it was more bitter than death. This relationship is more bitter than death. And, and he talks, Solomon, who wrote the book of Proverbs, also talks about the adulterous woman in Proverbs chapter 5 that we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but if you read through that, you'll see his firsthand experience with an adulterous woman and his guidance to people to avoid that kind of relationship. And so this is that same kind of language from Proverbs chapter 5 to what he's talking about here with the adulterous woman. And really this applies to adulterous woman or adulterous man and the relationships that we fall into with that. The one who is seeking that kind of extramarital relationship is the one who is setting snares and nets, he says here. And the one who is laying the groundwork for the ruining of many lives. He says that their hands are, are fetters. They, they bind people up. Meaning that this sinful act ties up and drags down those who are caught in it, who are caught in adultery. But also, not just them, a lot of people around them, a lot of people that are on the fringes of those relationships get, get dragged down with them. Listen to Solomon in Proverbs 5, verse 22. 
He says, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Solomon had ample experience with being enslaved by this very thing. Listen to a text from 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 6. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. He had seven hundred wives who were his princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. With first-hand knowledge, Solomon can write after chasing after wickedness and folly, like he talked about in verse 25 here. But you know what? Hope is not gone. This doesn't have to be the end of the story for those who are maybe caught or ensnared in adulterous relationships. Look at verse 26b, the end of that. It says, He who pleases God escapes her, this adulterous woman, or this this adulterous relationship. But the sinner is taken by her. The sinner is taken by her, but he who pleases God actually escapes her. So what's the solution? What's the way to be free from the sin and the guilt of an adulterous relationship? Solomon makes it pretty easy here. Two words. Please God. Those who please God escape her. But those who remain in this sin will be caught up in it. Now, that sounds easy. Okay, please God. What does that mean? What does that look like? For someone who has been maybe unfaithful to their spouse, what would it look like for someone to please God? There's, there's so much to be worked through in something like this. But just know that it is possible if you submit yourself to the Lord and to His Word. And here's a good starting point for pleasing God, maybe if you've been caught up in this kind of a thing. Firstly, I just encourage you to repent. Be convinced in your own mind and in your own heart that what you've done is a sin. Not just against your spouse, not just against yourself, but against God Himself. And then be resolved to turn away from it completely. Don't keep those relationship lines open, those communication lines open with those other people. You end it, and you repent of it, and you resolve in your heart to turn away from it completely. Secondly, I'd encourage you to confess it. Admit what you have done Be honest about your mistakes, both with God and your spouse. That process is going to be painful for them and for you. But you know what? It is a critical step to restoration. It has to happen. We cannot try to excuse our sin or to downplay it or even to hide it. We have to own it and then we have to turn away from it completely. And thirdly, I'd encourage you to believe Believe that in Christ you can be set free from sin because He died for that purpose. Jesus came to die for sin, for all those who believe, to rescue sinners of of whom you are one and who um, I am one. 
So believe, put your faith in Christ alone, not in your own effort and not in your own goodness, because they will always fall short. Only the righteousness of Christ is enough to satisfy God and make you right before Him. The next thing that Solomon found out is that even despite his hardest efforts, he could not reach the depth of his own sin or the full wisdom of God. We find this in verses 27 and 28 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Solomon has tried to figure himself and this world out repeatedly, but he just can't do it. He can't wrap his mind around it. And even though he was considered the wisest man of all, Solomon still couldn't wrap his mind around these things. Now he mentions in verse 28, he mentions men and women. And I think we should read and understand his comment as just the sheer number of people rather than which gender has a tiny percentage of goodness in them, right? So he, he says that you find one man in a thousand, but not a woman in a thousand. That's not uh, a condemnation on the, the woman gender. This is more of a 2,000 person. He can find only one who might actually be good. That's a tiny percentage. And it goes to illustrate his next point in verse 29, where he says, See, this alone I have found. So he's, he's tried all of these other things to understand. And this alone he's found. He's found something out rock solid for sure. And it's this, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So God made man, mankind, people, men and women. God has made them perfect. In Adam and Eve, he's made them perfect, but they've sought out many schemes. And so if Solomon has learned anything from this point in, at this point in his life, it's that God is not the problem. We are. God made man upright, but we have sought out many schemes. So mankind was made upright or righteous, but we've fallen far from that we have we've sought out how to sin we've we've made we've invented creative ways how to sin and paul illustrates the same thing in romans chapter 1 verse 25 he says that ungodly people exchanged the truth about god for a lie and worshiped and served the create the creature rather than the creator they served and worshiped the creature rather than the creator now Again, this shouldn't come as a big surprise to us, I don't think. Ungodly people do ungodly things, but it should not be so with the people of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13 that we've already looked at, this told us that God has made the world crooked in response to sin. And none of us are going to be the ones to, to fix it and to make it straight again. Well, why? Why would God do that? Why can't someone rise up from the ashes of our brokenness and make things right? That's what we want to see happen. That's what movies are constantly made from, people rising up from the ashes. Why can't human beings do that in order to become sinless and perfect? Verse 20 and verse 29 of Ecclesiastes 7, they've already given us this answer. Here it is. Because there's not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. And because God made mankind upright, but they've sought out many schemes. So even though Adam and Eve were created upright, righteous by God, what was their problem? They desired to be like Him. 
in knowledge and power. They sought out many schemes. And we think to, to Cain, and he sought out the scheme of, of murdering his brother, thinking that that was going to fix his situation somehow, fix the brokenness that he saw. And every woman and every man born from the bloodline of Adam and Eve are stained by this kind of sin and are therefore incapable of redeeming the brokenness that is all around us in this world, that is really coming from this world and from our own broken hearts and bodies and minds and souls. Only a perfect and unblemished sacrifice can effectively satisfy the debt that every person owes. And God, in His wisdom, had a better way to fix the brokenness. It wasn't, try really hard to do this on your own. That wasn't God's solution for this. His solution was sending His perfect Son. One whom Satan and the whole unbelieving world thought was weak. And thought was even foolish. Now think back to the qualities of real wisdom that we looked at at the beginning from James chapter 3. Are those the kinds of things, are those the kind of qualities that are praised in our day and age? Do people praise humility or gentleness? Not usually. Most of the time we value big platforms and we value big personalities and big voices. To the world, the person who is humble and gentle and peaceable and full of mercy, that kind of person is weak and foolish and usually unfit for leadership because we say, well, their skin just isn't going to be thick enough. They won't be able to lead well. well look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, along with me. We're going to see what this is really talking all about. The foolishness of our world. What God says is right and true. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see what that says? It says that God uses foolish people in the world to confuse or confound the people who think they are wise. And God uses the weak people in the world to shame the people who say and proclaim loudly that they are actually strong. Now, make no mistake, on your own, You can never be as strong and as wise as you need to be to make it through this life effectively. You can never be that on your own. Before you were born, before America was a nation, before time even began, God made His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is what 1 Corinthians 1, 24 and 30 say. God made His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the power and the wisdom of God. And He absolutely uses weak and foolish people to advance His kingdom, but it started with Jesus. He is the believer's righteousness. He is the believer's sanctification. He is the believer's redemption, He says in verse 30 of 1 Corinthians 1. 
So without Christ's indwelling spirit, you can never be truly wise. You can never have biblical godly wisdom. And James 1.5 says that if any of you lacks this, if any of you wants wisdom, lacks it and wants it, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Ask of God for this kind of wisdom. Acts 17, 26 and 27 remind us, it says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. This is an incredible text of God's sovereignty. God has mapped out, marked out appointed times and places in history for boundaries of lands and people's lives. And he did this, why? So that we would seek him. And when we seek him, that we would find him. How? Because he's not far from any one of us. God is not far from you right now. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you think you have strayed from him, no matter how unworthy you may feel today. Your current season in life has been marked out for you by God so that you would seek after Him. And the truth is that He's not far from you. He's not far from any one of us. And so our hope and our prayer this morning is whether, you, whether you're caught in seeking earthly wisdom, whether you're caught in trying to make a name for yourself, whether you're caught in an adulterous relationship, no matter what you're caught in, that you would cry out, reach out to God, because He's not far from you. Call out to Him in repentance and faith today, and He has assured you that He will save you. Let's pray together. God, we admit that we are weak. We admit that we have sinned, Even now, some of our hearts want to invent new ways to sin or to chase after the old ways of sin rather than following after you. Lord, we repent of that mindset and that way of life. Uh, If if anyone listening this morning has given themselves over to the sin of adultery as Solomon did so prevalently, Lord, I pray that in your kindness that you would deliver them from that trap and that you would rescue them, Lord. Your hand is reaching out and I pray that they would take it and be freed from that. Lord, we plead with you. We ask you to give us wisdom, not in the ways or in the eyes of the world, but in your ways, Lord, godly, biblical wisdom. Give us grace to repent and to turn to you in faith today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.